this has been Smolinero, author of The Leadership Contract, and I've had a great time chatting with Ryan at the World of Speakers podcast. We really talked about uh, the contract that speakers need to sign to really be the best they can be. And we never think about that, that when you are in the speaking profession, when you are a speaker, when you're bringing your ideas to the market and to the audience, you actually have to really define yourself as that speaker to be the best you can be. There's a form of leadership you need to demonstrate. And in this podcast, we explore more of what that means. But the real question for you is, are you prepared to really sign uh, this speakership contract? Have a listen, learn from some ideas, and share your insights with Ryan. Welcome to the World of Speakers podcast, brought to you by Speaker Hub. In each episode, we interview a professional speaker and reveal their very best tips and tricks. You'll learn to improve your presentation skills, keep your audience engaged, and learn how to grow your business to get more gigs and make more money. Here's your host, Ryan Foland. Ahoy, everybody. We are back with another episode with another speaker who speaks around the world. This is Vince Molinero that we've got today. Now, I had the pleasure of meeting him in person at Josh Linkner's Three Ring Circus. This guy is a leadership advisor. He's a New York Times bestselling author. And of course, he's a speaker. Vince, welcome. And I'm excited to speak with you on the World of Speakers about speaking. I'm excited uh, that you have me on uh, this great podcast. Thanks, Ryan. Well, thanks, buddy. It's, I think it's always fun to get people's insights while learning where they came from and then how they can help other people move the needle on their speaking career. Because at the end of the day, we're multiplying the efforts to make the outcome for more people more attainable. So before we get into any type of speaking tip, I want to learn more about you, but not just your typical tell me about you. I want to challenge you to tell me a story that's happened in your past that if somebody heard the story, which I'm going to hear it and everybody else is going to hear it, that it gives us some insight to you as a person, what you're all about, kind of stuff like that. So it's story time. We're at a campfire and you're around a whole bunch of people. It doesn't have to be a scary story, but uh, what's, what's a good story that, that represents who you are as a person or what you're all about? Uh, it's a great question. Um, I would begin with a story that happened early in my career, uh, my very first job after I graduated from college and started working in a large public sector organization. And what I quickly realized, you know, if, uh, a lot of young people, when they enter the workforce for the first time, they're just so ready to change the world. And that was me. You know, I want to have a real impact uh, in the real world. And here I joined this uh, large uh, organization that did really important work. It helped some of the neediest people in society get their lives back on track. So that was expi- inspiring and exciting. But then I was struck by the feel of the organization day to day. People just going through the motions Monday to Friday, no life, no energy, no vitality. And I remember early on going, is this what the world of work is going to be like? And now all I need to do is show up every day, be a diligent employee for the next 40 years. Mm-hmm. At the end of it, I'll retire. Maybe they'll give me a little ceremony with a cake, maybe a little watch or something. <laughs> is that it? And that was one of the early questions, literally weeks into starting that work. And I already knew that no matter how meaningful that job was and helping needy people, there was something more that I wanted. I wanted to have an impact on the organization. And I, over months and months being there, I encountered a leader, a senior manager named Zinta, who wasn't even my direct manager, but somehow she saw something in me and gave me an opportunity to work with her to actually try to turn around that workplace climate and that environment. And 
we started to put things in place and it started to change. So here are all these people showing up like zombies Monday to Friday. All of a sudden there was more energy, more passion, more vitality. And I realized the impact one manager like Zinta could have. And so I started to really get excited about this idea of what it means to kind of be a leader. But then disaster struck. Zinta had been diagnosed with lung cancer and had to immediately leave to start her treatments. And I was devastated, as a lot of us were hearing that news. But as soon as she left, it seemed like everything that we worked towards, all those positive changes ever so slowly started to revert back. And I realized one manager might be able to start a change, but on her own, it's not enough to sustain it. And in her absence, everything got really negative and sour again. And it was a really frustrating time. And I was hearing through the grapevine many, many months later that she wasn't doing well. And I felt compelled to go visit her because she was so helpful to me. And in that visit at her home, I could immediately tell the disease was getting the best of her. And she wanted to know what my experience was in her absence. And I told her my frustrations. And then she opened up and told me her experience as a senior manager in that organization. The bickering, the infighting, the lack of trust, the backstabbing, the sabotaging, it was really a toxic culture she was describing. And then she went further and she said she believed that her health, her disease that she was fighting, that cancer that was ravaging her body was a direct function of spending her career in that toxic culture. Oh, wow. I'm getting the goosebumps, by the way. You just gave me goosebumps, buddy. Jeez. Well, I walked away from that, from meeting her, just, you know, my mind racing with everything that she had said to me. Because as a young employee, I was completely oblivious to what was going on with senior management. Two weeks after that visit, she sent me a letter kind of encouraging me, challenging me. And two weeks after I got that letter, she passed away. And everything I've been doing to this point in time in my career is about that experience because I knew I had to make a change, that I had to, you know, I had to really take her words seriously to say, we could be better. We could do better. We can't create toxic workplaces. We need leaders like Zinta who are inspirational and supportive of the people they lead. And shortly thereafter, I left the organization, started my own consulting business. And that's what I've been doing all along is, is really on this mission to help companies create the best leaders they can because of the impact it can have on employees, on customers, on productivity. And, and that's really what I've been doing uh, since that time. Wow. So that's that's an amazing example of a story that definitely gives tons of insights to you as a person and what you're doing. And you even gave me the goosebumps. Jeez. And it actually makes me think of originally the irony in the fact that this company was helping to change lives as an output, yet it was breaking people who were within the organization that were the functioning units to make the change in people's lives outside of the organization, right? Like yeah. that seems pretty ironic. Well, it, it's a great observation. Not, you know, not only is it ironic, but what I came to learn is, is how they coped hmm. because the work, when you were helping your clients in need, it, you know, that was gratifying, you know, that was fulfilling and it allowed you to kind of almost, you know, ignore all the organizational crap that was going on. And that's how people kind of survived. Um, if that work wasn't meaningful, if it was really mundane and mind-numbing, I think you would have had a different environment. But what I also learned, because the question I always ask myself, 
was number one is I, I, you know, at the time I said, well, did that experience that she had in that environment really cause her disease? Well, now we know enough about the impact of stress and workplace stress on people's health. So the answer is yes, there was probably a strong connection. She believed it so. And then I asked, well, if it was so bad for her, why didn't she just leave? And I didn't realize the answer to that question many years later in my consulting work, Zinta was a baby boomer. And the ethic of the baby boomers was you put up with the worst managers, the worst cultures, the work environments. That was kind of a badge of honor that boomers had. And I was a Gen Xer and I already knew I was wired differently. In fact, I left. Right. A very stable, fairly well-paying job because I said, no, that's not for me. I'm not going to pay that price. I want to work with great leaders who want to build great cultures, not toxic ones. And that was always my aspiration. But it's interesting how you have these questions early on, you don't quite have the answers. And then many years later, those answers come. Hindsight is twenty twenty. Yeah. Right? So tell us about your book and how that came about and, and how integral that is to the impact that you're making for people that maybe can't afford your consulting or, or can't get in front of you. Talk to us about this book. Well, you know, I've been on, you know, since that time with Zinta and, and since I kind of broke out on my own, I've had, you know, various experiences. I've gone back into companies, into consulting. I've had leadership roles myself. I've done kind of my graduate, all the academic stuff that that one needs to do. And I've, you know, worked with a ton of leaders and, and, and their companies and really helping them build you know, strong leadership. And along the way, I've always sort of done speaking and writing and research to kind of inform the work. And in around 2010, 2011, I started to see clients bring me different challenges. And initially, we were always trying to encourage organizations to invest in developing their leaders because they would see the payback. Well, that was no longer the problem then. What we were finding was that companies were investing in developing leaders, but not seeing it translate into stronger leadership. One, one you know, a meeting I had in particular was a head of HR and organizational development for a large financial services company. And, and she was quite visibly frustrated in that meeting. And she was saying, you know, I, I thought we had done all the right things when it comes to developing leaders. And I asked what she did and she said, well, we... We identified who, who our key leaders were. We invested heavily. We coached them. We assessed them. We sent them off to business schools. We brought them back. We promoted them. We made them all vice presidents. And now we're waiting. And I asked, you know, what are you waiting for? We're waiting for them to lead. What's happening? Well, they're not. They're kind of looking at each other every day, thinking someone else is going to pick things up. They always look to the executive team for direction on everything. And she said, it's like they don't understand what it means to be a leader. And that was the first time I had that problem. It was like, okay, there's a new problem that companies are facing. And when you do the kind of work we do, it's always remarkable that you hear one new problem. And then it seems like every other day you see it, the same thing just crop up over and over again in other companies and other industries. And that's what was happening. And then I realized there's something more fundamental going on here that no one has really thought about. And that... What I began to learn was an issue around accountability, is that we have people in leadership roles who don't fully understand what it means to be a leader and aren't really stepping up in ways that their companies need them to step up, particularly today when the expectations and the demands of leaders at all levels is greater than than they've ever been. And so that led me to writing the leadership contract, which really kind of positioned this idea that We need people who are going to jump into leadership roles at any point in their career to understand that they've actually signed up for something really, really important, Uh, that leadership roles are critical to the success of any company or organization. 
And that without really being aware of it, people have actually entered a contract because we expect a lot from leaders. We expect them to step up in meaningful ways. And I think a lot of leaders haven't really thought about this idea of a contract. I think they, they treat it more like when you're online and that window pops up with all the terms and conditions. And right. when I'm really busy, I always sort of scroll down to the bottom, click agree. I move on with my day. Yep. I know I've entered something. I've entered some <laughs> kind of contract. I, don't, I have no idea what it is. Right. And that's the same thing. And so the book really talked about there is a contract and it comes with four terms. And the four terms are you've got to make a decision to define yourself as the leader because it is a different role that it comes with significant obligation and you've got to be clear on what those obligations are and work to live up to those, that it's not an easy role. It's a lot of hard work and you got to have the resilience and resolve to tackle some of the tough things that come in your role. And then the fourth is that it's about community, that it's no longer about the hero or one leader who's going to save the day, that leaders are having to collaborate and work together in ways they never have before. And so you've got to be really good at building that sense of leadership culture. And so, you know, we've created the books, we've got workshops and programs uh, that we've been delivering around the world. The books have been translated. In fact, later this month, uh, the Spanish uh, translation will be out as well. And so, uh, you know, this idea of, of the leadership contract and leadership accountability has really taken hold. And that's something I never would have anticipated or would have predicted. It's just sort of how things have unfolded. So I'm, you know, grateful for that. Well, that's life, right? The way that it unfolds, starting from your story, your ignorance, your experience, your somebody taking you under their wing, you making changes, those changes being removed as soon as they're removed, you being inspired and sort of shell-shocked that this type of environment could potentially cause cancer, which you found out later it did, and then you start seeing these problems, and then it's like a... It's like a gopher that keeps popping up that you decide to start whack-a-moling and eventually find out that it's a lot larger of a specific problem that has to do with the terms and agreements of a leader. So here's here's what comes to mind. I always like the idea that leaders are speakers and speakers are leaders. Do you think it would be a fair assessment to take this book that you had, and I'm going to say instead of the leadership contract, I've just crossed it out, and it could be the speakership contract. I just threw this ship on (laughs) there, right? So it's the same. And then you think that the four pillars of the contract we could substitute the word leader and put speaker and would it still make sense? Uh, you know, let's play that out. It's a really interesting idea and, and you know, one that I, you know, I haven't thought about until now. But, you know, if you think about it, you know, if I think about my own speaking career and I've had the pleasure and I do have the pleasure of, of knowing a lot of great speakers as well. I think uh, the really, really great speakers, the people that I truly admire, I don't think that happens by accident. And so I think there is a deliberate decision to say, I want to, I need to be a speaker. I need to commit to the craft of speaking and do what's necessary. Yeah. You know, to be the best speaker I can be for my audience, whichever audience uh, that, that, that may be. So I, I think that that is foundational. I think the other thing, you know, if I think about obligation, I do think that there is a an obligation that speakers must live up to, you know, in terms of, you know, creating value for the people in your audience. You know, I think sometimes people make, you know, the, it's a funny craft speaking because, you know, you're there, you're the center of attention, you're the spotlight, your ego can run amok with you. But at the end of the day, it's not about you. It's about your audience and making sure that you're clear on what your obligation is to provide value to them. I, I remember reading years and years ago in the early days of universities, 
talk about how different it is than today, but people who I, I guess would be self-proclaimed professors, you know, they'd give a lecture under a tree somewhere, right, with a group of students, right. and the students would pay them right after that, that lecture based on the value that they got. And I always thought, what a cool idea. Like, that's a pure entrepreneurial act. If you create value for the person, they will reimburse you or pay you based on their sense of perceived value. So you talk about the pressure that some of those, say, speakers or professors were in. So that obligation is important. I think the demands of, of being a speaker are a lot. So I think there is a lot of hard work, you know, to hone your craft, a lot of things that you've got to pay attention to and you've got to get right. So I, I don't think you can come at it with, uh, with a sense of lightness or treating it in a light way. I think you have to commit. And I think everyone that I speak to talk about the resilience and resolve you need to be successful. You know, we've all been on stage. We think we did okay. Then you get the evaluations and you see, you know, what do we always do? We look to the the lowest rated numbers, that's that's not easy. Right. That's where the eyeballs go to, yeah. And, and my sense is that it is also, um, it's a, there is a community, you know, so, you know, you referenced Josh uh, Linkner's event, you know, the, the benefit there was coming together with 25 to 30 leaders from very different areas and disciplines and understanding and learning from one another. And it's that sense of community and support yeah. that I think is critical to not only help you get better, but just, you know, help the profession as a whole get stronger and better. Totally. Okay, so before we jump into sort of the nuts and bolts of some of the tips to help people with their own speakership contract from a tactical standpoint, I want to throw at you this 313 challenge. So the thing that I speak about is the 313 and the problem that I'm solving is an idea that's not communicated well Mm -hmm. no longer becomes a good idea. And I think three sentences gets to the core of what people do. And so we've gotten a chance to know you. So I'm going to do a little pop quiz with three questions. And the fun challenge is that you can only answer them in one sentence. And if you don't get it, that's fine. We can play with it. But this is a way for the audience to kind of get up to speed and have super clarity on what you do. And the three questions are, what is the problem that you solve? What is your solution? And what is your market? And they seem very unassuming, (laughs) but they're actually... Very challenging. So if I could challenge you, what is the single biggest problem that you solve with your consulting agency? And then do not tell us what you do. That's the tricky part. So just tell us the problem. And then if you mess up, I'm going to go like, and then we'll start again. It'll be fun. So what is the biggest problem, the single biggest problem that you solve? And can you say it in a sentence? Yeah, I, I, I would say, uh, I'm waiting for the buzzer to come out any minute. Oh, no, no, no. <laughs> I would say, uh, and I'm challenging my own thinking because I love I love what you put forward. Yeah. So, I, you know, I would say that ultimately I help leaders get clear. <laughs> See, okay, and here's, here's, you said I help leaders, right? So that's what you do. So, so let's go back to the beginning. You can't, you can't tell me what you do. And the, the fun premise is that secretly, I don't believe anybody cares what anybody does. I think they're really more interested in the problem. Yeah. So if you tell people just the problem, they start to think about what your solution is and yeah. they're getting invested in the idea. Yeah. It's like a guessing game. All right, take two. All right. And you didn't lose any points. That was just a trial. Okay, okay. good. Okay. Right. It's like in tennis, my uh, first in. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And, and, and I'll help you. You can literally just say the problem is because yeah. we're so ingrained. We want to say that we help people, but... Let's pretend that nobody cares about that. So 
Yeah, the problem is we have people in leadership roles who are not stepping up to the expectations of their roles and ultimately are not accountable. And this is impacting company performance, cultures that companies are trying to create. And that's the problem that really needs to be addressed today. Gotcha. Cool. So if we had more time, it was just you and me doing this, I would push you back on, is it affecting performance or culture? Like if you had to choose a top level, like understanding that leadership that's not accountable will have a lot of problems, but what would you say the biggest problem is between those? Is, is it a cultural problem that it, that it creates? Is it a performance problem that it creates? I'm just genuinely, I'm just like honestly curious. Yeah. Well, the research uh, that I've done globally really shows that it impacts both, but that among companies... Is there one that's more than the other? If there had to be a, it was a split second race. Yeah. To me, it's always going to be about performance, right? Because okay. that's, I mean, ultimately that's what a company needs is performance. You can have a great culture and, and not perform. So it, right. it's, about, okay. it's about performance. Okay, got it. So that's crystal clear now on the problem. So can you explain your solution in just one sentence? And the trick is don't try to explain how, yeah. just explain what. So what's your solution to that problem? Well, the leadership contract helps leaders create the mindset so that they can lead with greater accountability and have the desired impact that the company needs them to have. Perfect. Super straightforward and clear. That's like the problem is solved by that solution. Now, the third question is, what type of leaders are you after? You know, what is that target market? Not everybody, but who does that leadership contract really, really speak to? Where we find, you know, where I find it really speaks to is anytime there's a, a company going through a, a major change. So there's a new CEO, there's a new strategy, post, post-merger and acquisition, where those are moments or inflection points where what it means to be a leader in that company changes. And the company needs leaders to step up and understand what those changes are and change how they're leading. And that seems to be where we have the greatest impact and success. Gotcha. And not just that they're trained, that they have an MBA, that they're a vice president position and that they've got a nice corner office, but the accountability behind those terms and services. I love that concept. Exactly. All right. So let's dive into from a tactical speaking presentation concept. You know, you're taking this message. And if we're based on the idea that a message that's not communicated well is not as good as a lesser message communicated amazing, how do you, when you're speaking around the world, what are some of the things that you really focus on making sure that you check the boxes in? What are some tips that you wish somebody would have told you that would have just 10x'd your speaking experience now? What would those top tips be? Well, you know, I would say, you know, the first one is learn from great speakers and work with people who've got adaptive experience. And so I've had the, the privilege and honor of working with Dr. Nick Morgan out of Boston, who I know has helped a lot of speakers. And he was helpful in just framing kind of the ideas in a compelling and personal way. And so that, that, that I think becomes really instrumental because of the consulting work I've done, the academic work I've done, you know, at times, you know, you can kind of come off sounding like a professor. And I think there, the, the, the impact has come by making things really personal in terms of sharing my own personal stories, but really personal and impactful for the person in the audience, right? So I think that's, that's number one. So knowing when you need to reach out and get good advice, uh, I think is really helpful. And a quick shout out to Nick. He is amazing. Yeah. I've had him on the podcast. I've actually hired him to do some work with me as well. And the same testimonial, just helping to bring clarity, but he's got so many years of experience with so many people. It's like you're tapping into that knowledge base exactly. and 
I don't think people realize that once you hire someone, right? I mean, it's, there's all kinds of free stuff and you can read his blog and it's got amazing stuff. But once you hire somebody, somebody who's really good, their full commitment is to do everything and anything to help you as much as possible. And that type of attention, like your whole world opens up because they become super candid. They become a tough love with you. They're going to push you and challenge you. And you just don't get that unless you engage somebody sometimes. So that's, I just want to throw that out there. Yeah. And and I think that the other thing is it's an accelerator, right? Because you can be successful figuring it out on your own, particularly if you're starting out. Uh, But you know, the the school of of hard knocks and trial and error takes a long time. And so I, I find the benefit is you just, as you say, learning from their wisdom and experience moves you quicker to ultimately what your outcomes, whatever they may be, uh, helps you move quicker to those. Okay. So tapping into your expertise, if you had a chance to talk with all the people that are listening now, what would be another thing that you would challenge them on or that, that you would help to give them some insight on? The second thing I've learned through that work is how personal this work is. In other words, people want to know about your story. I have shared the story of my experience with Zinto a lot. And, and, and I'm always amazed at how that impacts the audience and impacts people who are hearing it. And what's also interesting is that story is, I've come to learn, is somewhat universal. Whether I'm speaking to seasoned, you know, C-suite leaders who are in their 40s, 50s, and 60s, and also to millennials and, you know, Gen Z, that kind of personalization of the story really connects. So, I th- and that requires people to kind of dig deep, right? To kind of find what are those stories that are going to be kind of universal and meaningful based on the things you've experienced. A lot of times, those are not necessarily the stories of successes. They're actually stories of, here are the hard times I went through. Here's how I failed. Here's what didn't work. We're all living kind of a common experience as humans, whether in the workplace or in our lives. And the more we can bring that sense of who we are, that I think becomes, you know, really important. And I can see that challenge with somebody who is so research-based and, and backing things up by what's actually happening. And, you know, data becomes stale and it's just like, right. I can tell you statistics, but stories make things come alive. And to your story, it literally gave me goosebumps. Like whenever I get, get goosebumps, I tell people, cause it's like, it's a goosebump meter that like, right. there's something that resonates. Yeah. This idea of a universal story, do you find that this same story applies in a universal way or in a variety of situations? Yeah, I, f- I find it applies, I think when I say sort of universal, uh, universal, it applies across a broad cross-section of people. Um, and, you know, I've, I've just like in the last two, two and a half years, I've probably traveled to 70 cities around the world and you know, in sharing that story, it has impact. You know, whether, you know, whether I've been in South America, whether I've been in Asia, whether I've been in Europe, whether I've been in Australia, New Zealand, it, it doesn't seem to matter where I've been. Those stories, when you get, you know, when you kind of really have them figured out, have that kind of universal appeal. So a broad, you know, broad cross-section of people, different walks of life, different cultures, that is, you know, that, that is, I think, how I would be defining that. And you know what's interesting, thinking back just really on the actual story, is that it really spanned a long period of time, even to the fact where you're saying, eventually, based on research, we realized that her cancer probably was a result of that working experience. And then you go deeper and you're like, and then because she was a baby boomer. And it's like, it's a story that 
that really, I don't know if you, I'm sure you realize it, but it's, it's a short story that spans a yeah. very long time. And I think the power in that yeah. is all the middle, which you don't tell. Yeah. And it's me wanting to guess yeah. what happened in between those years. And I think that that, that idea of not giving the entire story away yeah. is what makes it so powerful. And I'm guessing and sort of making it part of my own story because you didn't fill in all the gaps. Yeah. Well, what's, what's interesting is the leadership contract came out in, in 2013 uh, in its first edition. And when you, know, you start writing this a year and a half to two years before, that letter from Zinta, I actually just kept in an old shoebox at home. And I always knew it was there, but I never got rid of it. And I'm not a very sentimental guy. I don't keep a lot of mementos and things like that. I'm always a little bit more future oriented. And yet when I started to write that book, I thought, I don't know why I got to bring this letter along with me, uh, because I think there's something in that story that we need to hear now. And so, you know, that story has been uh, dormant for 20 plus years um, in many ways, and, and certainly over the last five or six years, and I've been talking about it a lot. So, you know, I think that's the other part in terms of the personalizing the story is I think what surprised me was here's something that happened, you know, when I was 22, 23, 24, uh, being relevant today is fascinating, right? So I yeah. think we, I think, I think that the advice is, you know, going back into in terms of your experiences for that key experience or story that really defines you is important for us as speakers. I think that's great. So let's transition a little bit into maybe some of the insights of your speaking success and how you got there. For you to have been in 70 countries recently and spouting off all those continents, like that gets me excited. It gets people excited. I have been fortunate enough to be traveling around the world with my 313 as well. We each have our own path. But I'd be curious to pull some insights out of you that would be valuable for our listeners of, of how they can take it and make it their own. Yeah, well, I think to me, this is where a few things come into play, right, is for me, the, I mean, I, I've always done a lot, you know, as a trainer and facilitator, you know, I've always been in front of audiences, but speaking is a different craft than, than teaching. And I've done speaking from time to time, so I've enjoyed it, but it was always a small part of of what I did. And, but the writing kind of preceded the speaking as it relates to the leadership contract. And then, as I said before, you know, I was grateful and, and, and a lot of, a lot of gratitude in terms of how it reacted. I mean, the, I got to travel, not because I was pushing it out there that, you know, we had global research, uh, it became kind of a global problem that companies were facing and that, uh, you know, I was kind of lucky that that kind of played out the way it did. So, you know, I think a lot of times that certainly, um, you know, is a variable. I think the other the other thing where I have learned is, as I've talked to a lot of speakers, um, and I'd be certainly interested, Ryan, in your perspective, there's also a component, which is, you know, I think a lot of speakers kind of will write ebooks or articles or, or, you know, or blogs or books, and they speak. And then I find it's uh, what I'm really starting to appreciate is that there are those who then also can create intellectual property. And that becomes something that then, you know, your audience can hear you speak and get inspired and have some great ideas. But then if you've got products or solutions or workshops that come in behind that, then they really value it because then then that, that's their mechanism, their vehicle to actually take your ideas and inspiration and apply it in their own day-to-day -day lives. 
And so to me, that's kind of another element that I'm certainly paying more and more attention to. And it's something that I've always just naturally done is, is I can take ideas, create learning experiences from those ideas and, and bring those to organizations. But I'm finding that that's something as speakers, I think it's an opportunity to be thinking about your speaking business, your profession, your career through that lens of, you know, how do you create content? How do you create great speeches? And then how do you create that IP that then people can use, right? So it makes me think of the analogy of a movie trailer. Yeah. Okay. So let me just play this out for a second. Let's say it's a, you know, 10 to $20 million movie that's made. And the final product is, you know, an hour and a half, let's say two hour movie. And in order to package that into something that's palatable and entertaining, they'll put together a two to three minute highlight reel or some sort of a trailer. But if you really watch trailers, I'm fascinated because it pretty much is very close to like the movie. Like I don't like watching trailers because I feel like it ruins the movie for me. Right. And this idea of like if a 45 minute keynote or a workshop, I almost am envisioning this as like a trailer. It has the information. It might be a little fast paced. It might be exciting. There's some wow moments. There's some explosions. You know, Nick Morgan talks about that a lot about how do you start your speech? Like how does a James Bond movie start? (laughs) It starts with crazy action and brings people in, but it's like, is your speech a trailer to give them enough entertainment and value But if you don't have a full-length feature film for them to go buy the DVD or to go and watch over and over and over, it's never going to have that long tail traction. Mm -hmm. So I'm curious your thoughts on that analogy. Yeah, it's an interesting one, right? Because I think it it all needs to kind of be somewhat integrated, right? Because if you use the idea of that trailer, you know, the trailer might look, you know, might look great. And then you see the movie and it could disappoint you. Or the trailer looks okay, and you go see the movie, and it's far better than <laughs> your hopes and expectations. Right. So you look at a trailer, you go see the movie, and you kind of go, "I'm not even sure how the trailer and the movie even connect." Right, and so, <laughs> so I think it's that that how are these things, all these pieces, kind of integrated to tell that kind of unified sort of story. And I think to me, what that also means, you know, what I've learned, and, and maybe this this tip around speaking, is you know the the speakers who I've really also admired and connected with, it's kind of like there's a there's a real integrity between who they are and their message. So that they don't, you know, they're not on stage saying one thing and then behave completely differently off stage. Right. And I think people can kind of pick that up, right? Can pick up the sense of is that person the, the real deal? You know, if you're up there talking about, I don't know, coaching and giving feedback. And then the first time someone gives you feedback, you react negatively. Uh, That's kind of like, okay, probably not a good idea to do that, right? Right. So I think those are things that we also have to pay attention to. What's that kind of integrity about who we are versus our, our story and our message? And are you the real deal? Big questions, but I think those are important ones for us to think about because as speakers, it can be a very lucrative way to kind of earn a living. But to me, that gets back to that idea of, but you have an obligation, right, to your audience members. Mm. Yeah, I'm digging the speakership contract. This should be your your second book and I'll buy it and I'll share it with everyone. So from, you know, when you say 70 cities in two years, do you have like a target number that you go after? Do you try to get a certain amount of speeches per year, per month? What's some of the behind the scenes rationale of, of getting 
a number of gigs. Does it just happen? Are you actively out there? I know there's it's probably very dynamic, but for somebody who wants to speak more in more cities around the world, what are some of the, the low-hanging fruit things that they can start doing today? So I think, like all of us, we're at varying different points of evolution, right? And so right, yeah. uh, as I've traveled, some of that have been, you know, it, it's a world of paid speaking engagements. Uh, it's a world of engagements where uh, you're supporting marketing efforts uh, and whatnot. So certainly one of the things that I'm looking to work on is, you know, the, the other the other thing for me is I kind of run a business, right? And so the speaking that I do often is kind of off the, kind of the corner of my desk. And one of the things that I've come to, to realize is, is how do I make that more the center of my desk? So that's part of my work and, and part of what I'm learning. You know, in terms of what it comes down to, though, is I think like anything, it comes down to having compelling content, and figuring out how to get that content out through a number of channels, whether it's blogging or articles or video or podcasts like, you know, like you and others do, that help kind of get the word out to a broad message so that people are, A, know you're around. And it's hard to do today because there's so much content and there's so many people, but, you know, uh, it's also a big world and you can find your audience. And then I think it really is thinking about what's kind of that platform that you need to build. So I don't know if I have a good answer there because I'm figuring that out for myself, uh, you know, really as we speak. I think there's also this sense of knowing kind of what works for you because, you know, I haven't always done this travel. It's kind of where I happen to be at this point in time in the role I, I'm, I'm doing now. And so, and, you know, while it always, I always find, you know, you talk to people about global travel, it always sounds cool, <laughs> but, you know, it also has has its drawbacks in terms of, you know, it's a grind, right? It's, uh, you know, so is that something you're up to? Yes. When you get deplay, you when you get deboarded by a plane to get on another plane to only have that crew time out because of another issue. And then exactly. You, <laughs> exactly. Yes. Right. Yes. And, and, and not, you know, not even mention jet lag and time zones and, and having to be sharp when you're, the time is like 8 a.m. in the morning, but your body is thinking it's uh, 8 p.m. And, and so, you know, there's all of those. And it's 105 <laughs> degrees out with humidity and you're used to an ocean breeze, <laughs> all these things. Yeah, it's all of those challenges that I think, you know, so, so I think it's just a really a matter. But I, I think back to the key point is you've got to have compelling content, right? That's that's differentiated and that get the word out through a a number of platforms. The good news is there are so many platforms today that people can leverage. So that's, that's the great thing. And and I think once people kind of figure out what their formula is, as you said, I think that's, what's always, you know, what always strikes me as fascinating when I talk to various speakers is there is no one path. Everyone kind of gets there through their own unique journey. It's always fascinating to see how it happens. You know, somebody does a video on YouTube that just all of a sudden goes viral and boom, all of a sudden their, their phone is ringing off the hook and now they're a speaker on customer service or whatever the topic may be. Other people come at it <laughs> yeah. through a ton of business experience. Others come at it through academic research and background. There's no formula. I think everyone can figure out their own formula. And I think that's exciting, right? I think that's really exciting. That's the case. Yeah, I agree. I think a lot of people are looking for the magic pill, but if you are trying to get the magic pill, you're losing the whole experience that gives you that differentiation. Yeah. The worst thing you could do is be exactly like another speaker. (laughs) You know, Josh talks about this a lot and he's so 
my favorite advice is the simple advice. And it's the hardest advice to get because it seems so simple. (laughs) But it's like, what is the problem that you're solving? What is the single transformation that you're making? Why would I hire you as a speaker? Like, those are the questions that literally will create success or failure. We oftentimes overlook them because they seem so simple. Yeah. Well, and they're, and they're like the question you, you know, we started with, right? right? It's a simple, profound question that is not easy to answer, but you get that answer figured out and you start seeing different things play out because you make it so clear for people about uh, how they might be able to leverage your expertise and your ideas. Absolutely. So one kind of final twist on this to sort of tie it all in a nice bowl and is the leadership contract. And then we've got this speakership contract. Talk to me about the leaders who don't necessarily see themselves as speakers, but do you feel that they have more of an opportunity or is that part of their obligation to tap into their talent or develop the talent to become, uh, to take the stage more? So the question is, in the leadership contract, how much is a leader obligated to actually use the stage as part of their leadership, I guess? Yeah, it's a great, great point. I mean, I don't address that. I think the way I do get at it was the sense of helping leaders appreciate that. A lot don't, don't really fully appreciate how, in fact, they are an ambassador of the companies in which they work, work for. And then as a leader, people observe everything about you, right? And so the speaking skills become really uh, invaluable. And I think the people in leadership roles who invest invest in their speaking skills, I think really do have a leg up because uh, it's critical to inspire. It's critical to influence. You get, you know, your energy. People get a sense of who you are. So I would, I have not addressed that directly, but I would completely agree with your idea that if leaders are really looking to get their game to another level as leaders, speaking is a powerful way to do that. There you go. That's, that is something that I'm interested in because I work with a lot of leaders as well. And it's one thing to help somebody translate sort of the, the numbers or the purpose to their employees. It's another, you know, whole nother ball game for them to really own the medium of speaking to translate that. Yeah. Because I, I believe that if you as a leader can't effectively communicate what the mission and purpose is so that you do empower your employees to be further brand ambassadors, you're missing some of the, the opportunity that could come with just a performance of the company. Yeah. Yeah. I completely agree. Completely agree. And it's, it's that same going back, you know, tying back to your original story. It's this idea that you can have a company that's doing amazing things, very fulfilling things, but internally, if the leadership that has been developed is not signing their own contract to lead the system does not continue to work. Mm-hmm. And I think the irony of it all, where you have a company that's doing amazing things, but not doing amazing things for the company internally and how people are, are feeling and living in health, that the whole system kind of breaks down. So you are solving a serious problem, my friend, and I'm excited to get some insight on this contract that that uh, I need to pull up and look at those terms and conditions and, and need to re-sign. <laughs> That's great. That's great. Well, in the book, uh, there's a sample contract that allows you to do just that. So have a look. Awesome. And then I also, because um, one of the things when the book first came out in its first edition, uh, it's just this year I released the third edition of the leadership contract, but also wrote a field guide that accompanied it. So it got released as well because I had a lot of leaders really saying, 
how can I apply these ideas to my own uh, leadership role? And so we've got kind of the third edition of the leadership contract and a field guide. Um, so if anyone's kind of saying, how can I apply these ideas to my own leadership role, the field guide helps you do that. And we're getting really great, uh, great feedback on, on that. Excellent. Where do they find that? Is there a website they go to? How do they find that? Yeah, uh, www.theleadershipcontract.com. And then the books are obviously available on Amazon or Barnes & Noble or the John Wiley & Sons site. They're my publisher. I like to say, bam. So there you go. People, you have no excuse. You have a contract that you haven't signed and you update your iTunes terms and conditions all the time. Why not take a moment and update and actually read the contract of your speakership and your leadership contract? Vince, this has been a lot of fun. I'm looking forward to staying connected. Uh, hopefully, I'll see you at another Three Ring Circus or on the monthly webinars. It's just so fun to connect with other people that are using their voice to solve real problems. So I appreciate your time today. And I'm really going to be thinking about this contract. And uh, I'm going to redline it and make sure it's, it's on point and continues to get me where I want to go. Great. And thanks to you, Ryan. Really do appreciate uh, you giving me the opportunity to uh, be on uh, your uh, World of Speakers podcast. Thanks so much. For sure, buddy. All right, everybody else who is listening, there are more of these amazing conversations. Go to worldspeakers.com or make sure that you are subscribing to this channel, this podcast, wherever you like it. Make sure to give a review. Uh, let us know how we're doing and uh, sign, sent, delivered. There we go. Another podcast in the can, ladies and gentlemen. And now it's up to you to take that information and run with it. It's up to you and we will see you around. This is Ryan and Vince. And Vince, say goodbye on the count of three. One, two, three. Bye. Bye. All right, everybody. Have a great day. We'll talk to you soon. Bye.